HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by TechServe, New York's original and still the best Apple computer, iPod, and iPhone store and repair shop. For more information, visit TechServe.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right, it is Thursday, 1 o'clock, and once again, you've tuned into the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are on the line with Jean Bauer, president and co-founder of The Farm Sanctuary. Jean, welcome to the show. Hello, it's great to be with you. So... Your, uh, the, the mission of Farm Sanctuary is, is to protect farm animals from cruelty, inspire and uh, change the way the society views and treats farm animals, promote uh, compassionate vegan living. And I wondered if we, I thought we should start the show off with talking a little bit about what exactly it is you guys do. Yes, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, We operate three sanctuaries for rescued animals. We have one in upstate New York and two in California, one in northern California, one in near Los Angeles. And these are sanctuaries for animals who have been rescued uh, during our investigations and working with other uh, animal protection organizations. We rescue animals from factory farms, and in some cases we found living animals literally thrown in trash cans or on piles of dead animals. Um, so we bring them to farm sanctuary and let them live out their lives. We have active visitor programs where people can come to the farms, get to know these animals, hear their stories, and connect with them as individuals who are emotional animals who have a very complex social life. And they also hear their stories, learn about where they come from, learn about the factory farming industry. And so we rescue animals, we educate people, and we advocate for ref- reforms. We advocate for changes in our food system, and specifically, we're combating the cruelty of factory farming, where you have animals put in cages and crates where they're packed so tightly they can't even turn around or stretch their limbs. And so we're trying to you know, change the system, outlaw those kinds of cruelties, and raise awareness uh, and encourage citizens, ultimately, to make choices that are more humane and are healthier and support a more sustainable food system that is more plant-based 
and using less animals, especially animals raised in these factory farms. Now, your organization is, is about 25 years old, is that correct? That's correct. We were founded in 1986. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you first started, what, what prompted you to create the sanctuary and what it kind of looked like in its first few years? Sure. Uh, back in the mid-1980s, there was very little awareness about what was happening on factory farms and how the animals were being treated and about the consequences of this industrialized animal production system. So in the early, mid-1980s, I actually started going in to farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to see what was happening, to document firsthand the conditions. And we would literally find living animals thrown in trash cans or living animals dumped on piles of dead animals. And we started rescuing them. So our sanctuary work began, and then we noticed that a lot of people were interested in hearing about the animals, and that sort of led to our educational work. Then we needed more space, so we ended up acquiring some farms, and so the rescue and education work continues there. But no sanctuary is able to take care of the literally millions or even billions of farm animals that are exploited in the U.S. every year. So we think we need to change the system. But in the early days, there was very little awareness about this issue, and that's one of the main reasons that Farm Sanctuary was founded, to take on the factory farming industry, to raise awareness, and to encourage people to think about their food choices and to recognize that these are living, feeling animals. They're not just inanimate chunks of meat that magically end up on your plate. So one of the things I'm curious, you know, having kind of, worked from this purview over the last 25 years. I mean, do you feel more or less optimistic about the mission and your organization's ability to, you know, accomplish it than you did, you know, in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, we were very, very small. It was an all-volunteer organization. And, and today we have about 80 staff people, and we have a budget, you know, that's in the millions. So I am very thankful that we have grown to the extent we have grown and also, there is much more awareness now about what happens to animals on factory farms. There's widespread mainstream opposition to the common cruelties of factory farming. Most people don't think it's okay for animals to be put in cages where they can't move. So I think we've raised a lot of awareness there. And at the same time, there's more and more vegan uh, plant-based options available, and there's more and more vegan restaurants uh, that are popping up in New York and California and all over the country. So I think we're in the midst of a food movement, um, and we also have farmers' markets that are positive development. We have community-supported agriculture programs that are very positive community gardens. So there's a lot of very good things happening right now. So that makes me optimistic. Um, unfortunately, agribusiness is very entrenched still in Washington, D.C. They're very influential. Uh, so we still have a long way to go, but uh, generally speaking, I think we've come a long way. I think momentum is continuing to increase, and I am optimistic. So I'm curious, on, on your farms, I mean, one of the challenges that I, I feel like you see often in reporting uh, of factory farm operations or um, large-scale slaughter facilities is a real kind of closed-door policy where where folks from organizations like yours or from the media aren't particularly welcome. So I'm curious, you know, how... Do animals come come to you? Uh, I mean, I'm kind of imagining, you know, like a roving, you know, van that like pulls up and like goes in and like rescue, rescues, you know, as many animals as they can kind of grab in a snatch. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. So can you talk a little bit about how, how animals get to your sanctuaries? 
sure. And, you know, as you say, these uh, industrial operations are not welcoming on visitors. They usually want to keep us out. And, in fact, they've actually been working to pass laws recently, making it illegal to take pictures and to distribute pictures of these facilities. So this is an industry that really uh, depends on secrecy to continue because what it does is completely unacceptable to most people. So that's sort of the, the underlying sad reality. Now, so how do the animals come to Farm Sanctuary? In some cases, you know, when I've been to these places, I've literally found animals discarded uh, on the dead pile behind the place. And so it's like picking their trash. And so I've done that in the past. Uh, now, what, what is starting to happen more and more are people that actually work at these places are not happy with what they're seeing, and they're starting to take action. So some people that have worked at these uh, farms have actually contacted us and brought animals to Farm Sanctuary. Uh, sometimes now humane societies and SPCAs are starting to get involved and to have these animals removed from abusive situations and brought to Farm Sanctuary or other sanctuaries around the country. Um, and so we're, we're in the midst of a change, and I think there's more and more people that are starting to speak out against what is happening on factory farms. Uh, unfortunately, billions of animals still suffer in silence and still are hidden from public view, and that's something agribusiness is hoping to, to maintain. But there are starting to be cracks in the system and people speaking out, stepping up, and in many cases removing animals from these cruel situations. And what type of, I mean, entry policy do you have? Do you accept any type of animal, or do you focus in particular, you know, uh, breeds or species, or what's the kind of entry protocol? Yeah, well, Farm Sanctuary works uh, to help animals who are exploited by the food industry. So we focus on animals that most people in our country eat. Uh, So these are cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys, sheep, goats ducks and geese primarily, and these animals are all victims of abuse. Um, So we, um, and you know, no sanctuary can take in all the animals that need help. So we do as well as we can bring in as many animals as we can. And we also have a very active adoption network. So if we're not in a position to uh, have the space to bring an animal into farm sanctuary, uh, then we will reach out to our network and try to place uh, animals in good homes. And I'm assuming the staffing on the sanctuary sites must include people who have kind of trained veterinary experience. I mean, I know from spending time on farms that, you know, there is a challenge when an animal is is injured, um, you know, making the decision to figure out how to care for them and, and where to um, invest you know, your limited financial resources in, in having care for that animal. So how do you guys navigate that, assuming that a lot of the animals that come your way have significant kind of health issues? Yeah, and many of the animals, as you say, that come to Farm Sanctuary do have significant health issues. And, you know, we do everything we can to provide them with the best lives possible. And we work very closely with veterinary institutions that are near our farms. Uh, in Watkins Glen, we're not very far from Cornell University. And in Orland, California, at our Northern California facility, we're not very far from UC Davis. So these are some of the world's top veterinary institutions, and we work closely with them, as well as with other veterinarians and specialists who know how uh, to provide the best care for these animals. And we have a, a, a talented staff as well uh, that works with these others and works with the animals on a daily basis. 
and you, as you, in some cases, an animal is in very bad shape and the quality of life deteriorates to the point where that animal really isn't enjoying life and is suffering more than they're living. And in those cases, our staff gets together and has a discussion about what is best for that individual animal. And that is really the bottom line that we look at when we're making, you know, big decisions about these animals. And um, so there's discussions, and in some cases, if an animal's quality of life is bad, and if they are suffering, and if there is no likelihood that they're going to recover, we will sometimes make the decision to have them humanely euthanized. And what, I mean, that, what is a humane euthanization for, for an animal? Maybe you could pick one or two specific animals and talk about what, how that looks. Well, you know, these are animals that are, in many cases, uh, very weak and not able to walk on their own, and they're sick. So we will have a veterinarian come in, and usually they will be euthanized by a lethal injection, but before that happens, the caregivers who are living with these animals and spending time with them on a daily basis will, will converse and talk about uh, whether the animal is eating or not, whether the animal is grinding their teeth, whether there are indications that the animal is suffering. And our people get very attached to these animals. It's sort of like, you know, people who have cats and dogs. So, you know, oftentimes there will be somebody who just does not want to have an animal depart this earth and they will make a very strong case that the animal should, you know, not be euthanized. And, and sometimes that position carries the day, but the primary decision has to do with what is in the animal's best interest. So there's a, a group discussion about it, and what is best for the individual is what will, will be done. And, um, but these are always hard decisions, and, um, and caring for animals and seeing their suffering and seeing where they come from, seeing the abuses these animals have endured, is also very taxing. Um, so we, uh, you know, want to make sure to provide uh, the support our staff needs to be able to care for these animals and to deal with these very stressful circumstances on a regular basis. That makes sense. Now, you guys take a stance, um, you know, that you're promoting a pro-vegan lifestyle as opposed to a vegetarian lifestyle. And I wonder if you could talk about you know, why it's important to pursue a vegan diet versus a vegetarian diet? Yeah, well, a vegetarian diet means that a person doesn't eat any flesh foods, meaning meat or meat um, of, of chickens or fish or cows or pigs. Um, although some vegetarians, you know, want that term to basically mean vegan, which means that you eat no animal foods at all, including no flesh foods, but also no dairy products and no eggs. And as part of a vegan lifestyle, you also stay away from using leather and wool in all animal products. And so I've been a vegan since 1985. And the reason we think it's important to raise awareness about the vegan lifestyle is that there's enormous abuse that exists in the dairy and egg industries. Um, a lot of times people you know, decide they want to become a vegetarian and they stop eating animals, animals' flesh because they don't want those animals to suffer. And it's very obvious if you're killing an animal to eat them, you know, you've caused an animal's life to be ended. Uh, but sometimes people think that drinking cow's milk doesn't cause so much harm because the cow's giving milk and you're not killing the cow. But in fact, a dairy cow has one of the worst lives of any farm animal. They're pushed to produce about 10 times more milk than they would normally produce. So their bodies are intensely stressed to do that. 
in order to produce milk, these cows have to have a baby. You know, just like other mammals, they don't lactate unless they've had a baby. So these dairy cows have a calf every year. The calf is taken away from them so that the milk can be taken and sold for humans. So there's the stress of being removed from the calf from the mother. Both the calf and the mother experience emotional distress when that occurs. And then, you know, in a healthy environment, a dairy cow would live about 20 or 25 years. But on modern dairy farms, they're pushed so hard and their bodies are taxed to such an extent that they're sent to slaughter after just about three or four years in production, and then those cows are slaughtered for ground beef. So dairy cows have a very bad life, and supporting the dairy industry contributes to enormous cruelty, and we want people to be aware of that. And when it comes to eggs, you have egg-laying chickens that are put in these small wire cages where they're packed so tightly they can't even stretch their wings, their feathers are worn off from constantly scraping against the bars of their cages. They have bruises and abrasions on their bodies, and they live that way for about a year before they're killed. So they also have a very difficult life. And, and the fact of the matter is that we as human beings can live and do very well by eating plant foods and staying away from animal foods. So we just want people to consider that, and we recognize that everybody has to make their own decisions. But we think it's important for people to know that they can make a decision uh, to adopt a vegan lifestyle if they choose to. All right. Well, we, if you've just joined us, we are on the line with Jean Bauer of Farm Sanctuary. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about um, the work that you do up at Farm Sanctuary and the role of animals in farms more generally. So hang tight. Uh, we'll be right back. I wanna put you in a big white cloud, push you around. You're listening to 1000 Breakfasts with You. Buy cookies on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Joe, your computer is so slow, I can't even use this thing. Yeah, I should probably get a new one. Do you have any suggestions? Oh, totally, man. You should go to TechServe. Okay, what's so good about TechServe? Well, they've got this awesome new insider program that's free when you get a new Mac with Apple Care. So you should buy your computer there because you get 50% off data transfer, free loaner computers, front-of-the-line repair privileges, an annual Mac tune-up service, backup consultation and setup, seminars, and much more. Okay, yeah, where's TechServe? It's at uh, 119 West 23rd Street in New York City. They're New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider, and you should totally check out TechServe.com for more information. All right, that settles it. I'm headed to TechServe. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Jean Bauer, president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. So, Jean, you know, the farm animals that we're talking about have, have, you know, essentially over time been domesticated, 
for for meat production, uh, for food production, um, you know, unlike a, a dog or a cat that have been kind of bred and cultivated as companion animals, I think my sense is that most of these animals exist only to be in the realm of, of food production. And I'm curious, you know, what would... Would we we see the extinction of these types of animals in the absence uh, of food consumption, or what role do they have if if they're not kind of living on the farm to uh, you know become a meal on someone's plate or you know a glass of milk? Yeah, as you say, these animals have been bred specifically for certain production traits, uh, but doing that has actually caused animals who have genetic predispositions to various health problems and who suffer. Uh, and in some cases, my opinion is that it would be better if these animals were actually never born. And in the case of turkeys, for example, just to give you an, to, to tell you how profound these profoundly these animals have been altered, uh, turkeys have been so much changed genetically that they can no longer mount and reproduce naturally. So all turkeys that are used commercially in the U.S. are products of artificial insemination. And these animals have been genetically bred to grow twice as big and twice as fast as normal. They've been genetically bred to have large breasts because breast meat is the most profitable. So these animals' legs have a hard time supporting their heavy bodies. Uh, they're, um, they tilt forward because they have more weight towards the front of their bodies than the back of their bodies. So they oftentimes suffer from crippling leg and joint problems. So these are animals who've been bred for production traits uh, to their own detriment, to the detriment of their own welfare, and I think it's a very important problem that's not really talked about very much. Uh, you also have in the chicken industry, for example, chickens that grow so fast and so large that their hearts and lungs have a hard time supporting their massive growth rate, and every year, millions die of heart attacks at just a couple of weeks old. So the genetic uh, breeding practices that we have used to produ- produce animals for specific production traits have caused enormous suffering, and I think it would be best uh, to stop doing that and to basically allow animals to evolve in the habitats where they are from and to be more natural and to live more natural lives, and so that way they would be physically healthier, they would be able to uh, interact in a healthy social environment, which is completely different from what happens today with animals in production. So I think we definitely would be in agreement in our opposition to, you know, factory farming practices and the kind of consolidation of, you know, genetics that have a real focus on, um, you know, character types for the meat market. Um, Where I think we may differ is, you know, thinking about small and medium-sized family farms that, you know, do work with older breeds of animals and allow them to... um, you know, express their natural tendencies, whether it's naturally mating or kind of rooting or roosting, um, depending on the animal. I'm just curious, what would you say to these kind of non-factory farmers who love their animals, who feel like they're giving them, you know, a great life and that they're part of this, this other, the other part of that system is their inevitable consumption, but in the meantime, they're allowed to kind of express their pigginess or express the characteristics of, of being a chicken, and the farmers really see their work as um, you know, playing a role in, in protecting the biodiversity of these species um, and also in like local and regional food economies. Well, I think that with growing opposition to factory farming, there has been a big push towards alternative animal production systems, 
and these are being marketed widely now. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of times the way these products are marketed sounds a lot better than the reality. In the case of free range, for example, you know, uh, animal food products sold as free range. A lot of times people assume that those animals are running outdoors and enjoying a good life. But free range only requires that animals have access to the outdoors. It doesn't talk about how many animals can be crowded together. And it, so oftentimes what you have is animals raised basically in a warehouse with a small door that goes to a crummy little paddock outdoors that's not very big. And those animals never use that outdoor space. And then that can be sold as free range because they technically have access to the outdoors. Um, so that is starting to happen more and more where you have producers and retailers marketing animal products, you know, making claims that sound a lot better than they are. And believe it or not, sometimes these factory farming people who put animals in warehouses say that they're doing that for the animal's welfare. Um, so I think, you know, if an animal is given more space, that is better than being given less space. An animal is able to express some of their natural behaviors that is better than not expressing some of their natural behaviors. So these are steps in a good direction, I believe. But I think it's important to just think critically about our food system and recognize that sometimes uh, there is an incentive on the part of the producer and the retailer to sort of bolster the notion that these animals are having great lives when, in fact, in many cases, they're not really living that well. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point that there's a, a lot of onus on the consumer to really know a, a ton of information about the food they're purchasing and where it's coming from. And unfortunately, transparency in the food system is not, I think, where where it should be. Um, I, I want to think about you know a whole farm system more generally, I mean, in a historical kind of farm setup, you have the animals and the kind of vegetable or grain production working together where, you know, the waste of one is fertilizer for the other and the byproducts of one are feed for the other. And you have kind of this lovely um, whole system. And, and, you know, now as we move, you know, from thinking in particular with vegetable production, you know, larger farms um, have you know, the input-output systems have changed where they're not kind of taking things from within the, the existing farm system. I guess I'm just curious, you know, what do we lose um, for farms and farming communities in the absence of animal production? I mean, what do we lose for animal producers, but also what are what's at risk or what's the loss for people who are producing vegetables? Yeah, and I think historically, you know, farms have been integrated and diversified and you have various parts of the operation that support other parts of the operation. And that was a much healthier system than what we have today. And traditionally, animals and plants both had been raised. Um, but just because it had been the case in the past, I don't think in the future we necessarily need to have animals on farms, believe it or not. There are some veganic farms. These are farms that only produce plant foods that are existing now, and they have different crops. They rotate those crops. And this is sort of a developing farming approach. But the bottom line, I think, is that we need to create a sustainable food system, one that does not squander scarce resources, one that treats the land gently uh, and produces food that is wholesome, uh, that is widely available and accessible. And I know if you think about the inputs for any animal farming system, you need 
feed, and you need more resources, more water, uh, in order to produce animal foods. And then at the end of the day, if the animals are slaughtered, you know, that's a violent act that also has to be engaged in. And in the case of plant farming, you can produce a lot of food on the same... You can produce about 10 times more food on the same amount of land with the same amount of resources, and you don't have that ethical uh, challenge of, of the killing. So you know, that's what we put out as the ideal aspiration of the vegan world. We recognize that we're not going to have that tomorrow. So if animals are being treated better, that better than if they're being treated worse. But I think, as you mentioned before, transparency is a real problem. And uh, so the consumer, I think, needs to take a greater role in investigating and understanding food production systems. So going to farmers' markets and talking to farmers and incur and asking actually to visit the farms is, I think, a very positive way to get closer to where our food comes from, whether it be animal foods or plant foods, to get a real understanding of how this food is produced so that consumers can make choices that are well-informed and that ultimately align with their own values. Because I think it's important for people to be able to feel good about their food instead of saying, don't tell me, I don't want to know, which is too often the response when it comes to uh, the way consumers purchase animal food. I'm curious what you think about um, different animal um, or humane treatment certification programs and if your organization... Um, would stand in support of them, or if because your ultimate goal is, uh, you know, a vegan world that that's in con on, in contradiction with what you're trying to do, you know, organizations like Animal Welfare Approved or Certified Humane or things in that vein. But, well, I think that again that these programs are an indication of a growing market for alternatives to factory farming. But I would also say again that. Too often the standards for these programs are quite low and that there's an incentive on the part of producers and retailers to make the conditions sound better than they are uh, so the consumers are more attracted to them. And a lot of these labels and these programs, unfortunately, don't have very humane standards. And so Farm Sanctuary does not endorse any animal consumption, so we do not endorse any of these programs. But we do encourage that the standards be increased and improved so the animal suffering is lessened. Uh, but we're still, especially right now, we're really concerned that there's not much infrastructure, there's not much oversight, there's not a very uh, robust system to ensure that these certification programs uh, mean very much. Well, we are about out of time, but I wanted to touch on one more issue that I often find confusing um, when I'm speaking with people in the vegan community and and that would be when I go you know out to the store I often see vegan products that are made to look like meat um, you know and comprised of uh, you know highly processed you know uh, corn or soy based products that are used as you know essentially a replacement you know meat or protein source and I'm curious you know the farming practices behind those grains often include, you know, large-scale monocultures that are incredibly taxing on the land, in addition to, um, obviously, incorporating GMO technologies. And I'm just curious, you know, from a, from your organization's standpoint, you know, how do you, you reconcile the that kind of desire in the vegan community for meat-like products or products that are essentially kind of highly highly processed and, and no, no better for kind of your body or, or the earth? 
Yeah, well, well, I would first say that you know those products are probably better for the earth and probably might be better for the body. That's a questionable, but in terms of better for the earth because you require far fewer of those plant inputs than you would if you were feeding animals and raising the animals, um, and less pollution as well. But I do take the point that these are processed foods and that they are wasteful, and they're not all that healthy either. And I think a lot of these meat analogs are good transition foods for somebody who's used to eating a hot dog. Now they can get a veggie dog, and it's very convenient and it's very familiar. And we tend to be creatures of habit and do things because we've done them without really thinking about them very much. So if somebody eats a veggie burger instead of a hamburger or a veggie dog instead of a hot dog, I take that as a positive step. But personally, I I used to do more of that than I do now, and I'm increasingly looking to eat whole plant foods from organic sources and ideally from farmer's markets um, so that I am eating food that is healthier, that is supporting an agricultural system that I think is the most sustainable and the most accountable and um, so it's a process, and I think those meat analogs are a transition, but they're not the ideal food from my standpoint. Great. Gene, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if folks want to find out more about your work, they can visit the website, www.farmsanctuary.org. You have lots of uh, great information and videos and content there, so I would urge folks who are interested in the Farm Sanctuary to check out the website. Um, this is the last episode of the Farm Report. We're going to be taking a two-week break. We'll be back in the new year, kicking off 2013 with a bang. I want to thank everyone out there for listening and for a great year in 2012. Uh, this program, like all 27 of the live shows on the Heritage Radio Network, are available on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org, also as a free uh, download through iTunes or on Stitcher Smart Radio. If you're, a, if you're a Stitcher user, you can check us out there. Um, Want to say a big thank you to Savor for choosing the HeritageRadioNetwork.org as one of their top 100 food uh, items in their, their end-of-the-year issue, so definitely check that out. And stay tuned for uh, the, farmers, the Grow NYC Farmers Market Update, which is coming up next. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be right back with the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, you have tuned into the Grow NYC Market Update, and we are on the line with Liz Carollo from New York City's Green Markets. Liz, it was awesome to see you at our little soiree last night. I hope that the morning is treating you well. Oh, yeah, it's great, and thanks for having us. It was super fun. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so you want me to get into what's exciting and new at the market in the late December month? <laughs> oh my gosh, so many things. Let's jump on it. <laughs> All right. So 22 green markets are open year-round. I know that we've said that before. We're going to keep saying it because I want to remind people that we have winter markets, and they're not just for root vegetables, although there are plenty of them out there, um, but also lots of hearty greens and meats, cheeses and yogurts, maple syrup, honey, and some other ve- fun um, bee products, jam, and um, more and more every year we get more and more producers that are bringing in hothouse and greenhouse leafy greens, herbs, and tomatoes. So if you're really jonesing for some some summer veg, it's, it, there's, a, there's a few items out there. Um, also, 16 of those 22 markets accept food stamps, sorry, food stamps also, but food scraps and textiles year-round. Uh, we're really close, about 10,000 pounds away, so probably we'll hit that mark this weekend, um, to hitting the million-pound mark on food scraps collected since our program started in March of 2011. So that's a lot of diverted landfill waste now on its way to becoming that beautiful nutrient soil. We're really excited um, about those numbers. Wow, kudos. That's awesome. A million pounds. I wonder, like, what does that look like? What would a million pounds? Like, would it fill Roberta's? Uh, yeah, maybe maybe over over that amount. <laughs> I think it would be a pretty tall. Well, hopefully uh, most of it has been turned into compost already. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a lot. Awesome. Uh, and then what about, I mean, I, I see a note here on apples, which is like definitely my go-to winter fruit. But what, uh, what do you recommend? Where, what should we be looking for and thinking about with regards to apples at the green market? Great. I know everyone's probably like apples again, and we talk about apples all winter. But I, I don't know if people understand through winter why we continue to talk about them. And it's because at the market, they stay really, um, the, the, the apples that are harvested in the fall, they stay crispy year-round due to a thing that people don't know about called controlled atmosphere storage. So a process for um, apples ripening basically works like they take in oxygen, they give off carbon dioxide, making the starches in the flesh of the apple turn to sugar. And in these, um, in the controlled atmosphere storage, there's sealed rooms, the storage containers, it, it reduces the oxygen, so it slows the ripening process. It's a non-chemical process, so our customers don't have to worry about that. Um, and it involves the careful control of temperature, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and humidity, and the exact conditions in the rooms are set according to the apple variety. And I was at our Brooklyn Borough Hall Market on Tuesday, and Fred Wilkel of Local Orchards gave me a macoon that had just been taken out of storage and for me, it may as well have been September again. It was so crispy and sweet. So customers, if they're looking for the trait, um, if they're just looking for the super crispy apple to eat raw, they should just ask farmers directly which ones are the crispiest. And if you make the mistake, and like I did last week, and just buy a, a bag of apples that are not so crispy, fret yep. not, delicious applesauce is waiting in my fridge at home. So <laughs> always, always a use. I'm wondering, well, we're on a little bit of explanation. If you can tell us, I'm I'm just not sure I know what the difference between a hothouse and a greenhouse is. And oh, I don't know either. But next time you have June on, you should ask her. I mean, for me, the dif- the main there might not be a difference there. For me, the difference is, and I should have said these two: a hoop house and a greenhouse. So a hoop house is like looks like a semicircle going up into the air and has a like a flexible fabric material over it and doesn't get quite as hot. Whereas like a greenhouse and a hothouse is more glass or plexiglass and gets very, very hot, and probably, a lot of them probably now run off solar panels, but probably require a lot more energy, whereas a hoop house, a lot of our farmers have just constructed those um, because they're pretty cheap, and you can continue, you can more extend your growing season, whereas like a a hothouse or a greenhouse will have 
um, will allow you to grow like tomatoes, you know, because they get that hot. Nice. We'll have to check that out. And then I guess don't be afraid to ask your farmer if you see tomatoes on their stand, like, what's up? How'd you make that happen? Great. Definitely. Yeah, definitely ask the farmer if you see tomatoes in the winter and they'll tell you all about it. Well, I know uh, Hanukkah has passed, but Christmas is still coming up. Any market stuff we should be sure not to miss for the Christmas holiday? Yeah, so we have the Christmas goose that we've been talking about a little bit that Garden of Spices has, and then also Christmas hams, uh, flying pigs, Millport Dairy, Tamarack Hollow has really beautiful ham products, and Wilkla Orchards, they all have Christmas hams. I know a lot of people do Christmas dinners, but I grew up with a Christmas breakfast of grits and eggs, so I wanted to give a shout-out to that waking up to a big feast is, is also great. So you can get polenta from Cayuga Pure Organics, eggs, sausage and bacon, um, some hollow French toast with local maple syrup, and, um, of course, Red Jacket and some of our other juice producers and um, orchards have cider, so all kinds of fresh juices and cider. So you can get all your Christmas breakfast ingredients at the market also. And one thing I thought was so neat this year, you guys have the the wooden tokens, which I think make such a lovely gift for that market shopper or that market shopper wannabe in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about how those work? Yeah, they're great. And I, I don't know if people out there, I mean, a lot of people do because our numbers would probably went over a million dollars in debit credit sales this year market wide. But um, yeah, you can use your debit credit cards at most markets year-round, and in exchange you get $5 wooden tokens. They never expire. If you don't hit the $5 mark with whatever you're buying, you get cash back from the farmer. And we're putting them in these cute little gold pouches this year, so um, they're a great gift for you know the green market lover in your life. Awesome. So I'm not quite ready to think about this because I want to get a couple of uh, Christmas feasts in my belly first, but January 1st is coming up. It's kind of time to start thinking about New Year's resolutions and maybe a little detox. How can we work the green market into some of that planning? Um, yeah, I know that everybody is uh, still kind of going on the Christmas train, and I am too, but in about a week, everyone's going to be thinking about hitting the gym. So I just wanted to um, throw out some ideas for keeping the market in mind as you're planning your kind of January resolutions. Uh, the first being Pass on Plastic. We've done a big anti-plastic campaign this year that we're going to continue. I know all of our customers have gazillions of reusable bags in their apartments, so just want to encourage everyone to carry a few and give up plastic for good. It's really bad for the environment. It costs our farmers money to have to buy the plastic bags, so we want to move away from them. Um, number two, learn how to make stock. It's so super easy, even though it can be a, a little scary at first, but um, if you follow a simple recipe, it's, it's very simple, and then it will keep your immune system ready for any winter cold coming your way in the next few months. Um, the third one, fall in love with rutabaga, which is a resolution I can cross off because I'm madly in love <laughs> with rutabaga. <laughs> um, but I know everyone gets tired of seeing those root vegetables for months on end, but it still doesn't mean caramelized turnips, beets, rutabagas aren't versatile and delicious. Um, number four, drop off your food scraps. And I just want to encourage people to start start really small if they're a little bit afraid of collecting them in your house. Keep a bag in your freezer. Drop it off once a week at your neighborhood market. 16 of our markets accept um, food scraps year-round, so you can find that list on our website. But it is, it's like a revelation to not have food in your garbage can through the week. I mean, I almost went down to no trash in my house ever. Most of it was just food scraps. So um, that's a really nice thing. Get it out of your kitchen. And then uh, clean out your closets. So 
you know, you get a new Christmas wardrobe and you can drop off all your old textiles at the 16 markets that collect textiles year-round. And then also I want to encourage everyone to become a winter warrior, stay devoted to the markets. The farmers are out there in the rain and the snow. They want to see you. And we'll also, um, starting in January, probably at most of the markets, we'll have a program, a winter warrior program, where people can check in weekly and then at the end of winter um, get, like, a nice markety prize. Oh, sounds like fun. Um, well, great. So I guess we'll have to wrap up here, but you have a few events we want to put on people's radar. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Eat the City with Robin. And then, of course, Jimmy Carbone of uh, Beer Sessions Radio is hosting the kind of annual Cassoulet cook-off. So give us a scoop on those. Great. Yeah, and there, everything's on our events webpage, so I'll be quick. But, yeah, Robin Schulman's doing her Eat the City. She already did one book signing in the fall. She's doing another because it was a big success. It's an incredible book. So, um yeah, so so go see Robin this Saturday at Union Square and kept, pick up a copy, uh, maybe extra for Christmas gifts. And then the Jimmy's does the Cassoulet cook-off. It's a, a fundraiser for our sister program, Learn It, Grow, Eat It, which teaches teenagers how to l- learn about nutrition, how to f- grow food, and then how to cook food. So what better way to spend a Sunday in January than hanging with the Green Market crew, eating beans, meat, and beer. So that's Sunday, January 13th. So put it on the calendar. Awesome. Liz, thanks so much. Uh, to stay up on the latest and greatest with uh, Grow NYC, definitely tune in every Thursday at 1.30 for the market update. But you can also find more info by visiting their website, www.grownyc.org. Check them out. Uh, plenty of time before the holidays to get out to a ton of great green markets and uh, fill up your kitchens and fill up under the tree and we'll uh, see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>